And we are asking the question, as the Psalms lead us, what, is it, what are the disciplines or the activities in the Christian life that help us to know God, to love God, to enjoy being loved by Him? I want you to listen to what one 13-year-old girl said when she was asked how she managed to sell over 12,000 boxes of Girl Scout cookies. So that's about $35,000 of gross sales in a month or so. This was her advice to other Girl Scouts. She says, you have to look the customer in the eye and you have to make them feel guilty. <laughs> that's, the, that's the key to sales. And it must have worked, right? A professor at the University of Oklahoma named Wilfred McClay published an essay this spring, a fascinating essay entitled The Strange Persistence of Guilt. The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And in the essay, he notes that, that uh, modern prophets, philosophers such as Nietzsche and um, others, expected or were confident that once the Western world finally threw off the straitjackets of religion and belief in God, that the experience of guilt would go away as well. In other words, with God out of the picture, there's no reason to feel like you owe a moral debt to anyone that needs satisfying. But in the essay, McClay observes that just the opposite has happened, that moving away from God has not diminished our sense of guilt. It has only served to leave us with no vocabulary to think about it or understand it, and no real options of getting rid of it. Except, of course, to buy thousands of dollars worth of Girl Scout cookies, right? All this brings up an interesting question, should we actually feel guilty at all? You know, is it right to feel guilty? Now, the Bible answers this question with both a yes and a no. We, uh, it says yes, number one, that we should feel guilty over some things, and in fact, we probably should feel much more guilty than we in actuality do. In one sense, the Bible says that we don't feel guilty enough. In another sense, the Bible says no. There are some things that we feel guilty about that we shouldn't feel guilty about at all, and in this sense, the Bible actually gives us freedom from feeling guilty about the wrong things. So how do we know the difference? How do we know the difference between uh, illegitimate guilt and legitimate guilt. How do we know what guilt should look like in our lives? How do we understand where it should lead us? And how do we know how it should be lifted once we feel it? That's where the penitential psalms come in. So the penitential psalms are so-called psalms of confession. Psalms like Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 102. Psalm 130 are just a few. And here in Psalm 51, which is the most well-known psalm, probably apart from Psalm 23, these psalms are given so that we might know how to recognize and respond to guilt that is legitimate, and so that we might know the grace of God in returning and restoring to us the joy of having the burden of our guilt taken away. Like I said, Psalm 51 is the most well-known penitential psalm. There's a superscription attached to the psalm, which is a little introduction that tells you the occasion of the psalm. You'll find that Psalm 51 comes to us out of what is perhaps the darkest period of David's life. 
after the prophet Nathan had gone in to confront him over the horrific events of committing adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband and his friend Uriah. You can read all about that story in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12. Uh, Those are the circumstances that inform the psalm. This is the content of David's response that comes some months later. Let's read Psalm 51 now and explore this, the discipline of confession and repentance and how it should flesh itself out in our lives. Psalm 51. The superscription says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray now and ask Him to teach us His word. Father, we thank You for... um, the way that you have used this horrific experience of David's own life to minister to people now for thousands of years. And we pray, Father, as we reflect on David's own contrition, Lord, this own um, example of repentance that your people have sung together collectively for thousands of years. Father, that you would um, sow your word into our hearts, that it would find root there, and that you would bear fruit in us, and through us, Father. And we pray that that fruit would be the fruit of repentance. We pray that you would return to us joy, that you would give us ministry to love others. Father, that you would help us to worship you more fully as your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So what is the pattern that David sets up for us here to deal with our sin and our guilt? That's what I want us to look at this morning. I want to give you a pattern to think about repentance. The discipline of repentance. The discipline of knowing what to do with sin. This should be a really sort of an obviously important uh, discussion that we're having this morning because sin is something that we're always dealing with. 
And, and this psalm is something that the people of God sang collectively, not just on occasion when things went badly wrong, but as a regular practice in their corporate life. What is the pattern that David here reflects for us or gives us to deal with sin and guilt? Three things I want you to see this morning. The first thing I want you to see in verses uh, 3 through 6 is David's example of honest confession. His example of honest confession. Second of all, I believe it's in verses around 7 through 12, I want you to see the pattern of simple cleansing. Simplicity and cleansing. And I'll talk about that, obviously. And then finally, I want you to see at the end of the psalm, David's excitement and motivation towards new obedience. New obedience. So, honest confession, simple cleansing, and new obedience is the pattern that we're going to look at this morning. The first two verses of Psalm uh, 51 function as an introduction and a summary of the psalm as a whole. It's in verse 3 and verses 3 through 6 that we really begin to see what it looks like to bring our sin to God, to confess our sin to Him. And David's words here show us that there are two important aspects that lie at the root of confession. One is that it is um, important that as we confess our sin that we begin to feel the gravity the weight, the burden of our sin. David begins to feel the weight of what he's done. He feels that he experienced it. And second, we're able to recognize whom it is our sin primarily has offended. David begins to feel the weight of his sin, and he's able to recognize whom it is his sin has primarily offended. Let's look at those briefly. Notice what David says in verse 3. He says, He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In other words, when David goes through life right now, he can't even get away from his sin. In fact, his sin is so pervasive that in verse 5 he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now David is not here making a historical statement, a doctrinal statement, as much as he is a poetic statement. And what he's he's saying in lyrical form is that my guilt is such a burden, it is such a weight, it is such a part of my identity right now, that I can't even recall a time when it wasn't a part of who I am. Now, I know that that sounds extreme, maybe even when we first hear it, unhealthy, right? But it really is this experiential and emotional sense of the weight of his guilt that moves David to repent in the first place. So it's really important in David's own life. And you say, well, how does someone get there? How do we get to the point where we begin to feel the wrongness, the burden, the weight of our sin? In other words, how do we gain a strong sense of conviction for our wrongness? Well, I think you need to know that it it took David a long time to even get to this point, okay? Um, This was at least nine months Um, as well as a prophet and a great sermon illustration from Nathan later, all right? But it's clear that what has moved David to the point of feeling the weight of his sin, the weight of his guilt, is an appreciation of whom it is his guilt has primarily offended. So look what David says with me in verse 4. Put your eyes there for a moment. David says in verse 4, Against you, and you only, have I sinned, 
and done what is evil in your sight. That is a curious statement, isn't it? It's curious because if you know the story, David is confessing sleeping with another man's wife, and he's confessing murdering that friend. I don't know, doesn't he owe Uriah an apology? I mean, hasn't he sinned against Uriah? And yet David makes this really bold statement against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned. What is he saying? Well, David is saying my sin is deeply personal. That that what I've done is not just um, transgressed some cold, impersonal moral code like, uh, like going past a stop sign where it hurt nobody, Right? It's not just against any person. David said, I've sinned against the person who has created me. I've offended the person who has parented me with goodness and mercy. The person who for years has been my refuge and help in time of need. The person who has loved me and shepherded me and delivered me and protected me. You see, David begins to feel the weight of his sin because David begins to feel the weight of breaking the heart of the one who has loved him most deeply. And men, this is, this, is, um, this is critical, I think, to making a distinction between legitimate guilt and illegitimate guilt. The Bible describes legitimate guilt as rebellion against God, born out of rebellion against his word. It's a time when we have failed to love God and love others whom he has made with the kind of love that he has called us to. Illegitimate guilt is guilt that is generally born out of um, desperately wanting people to like us. The Girl Scout didn't sell $30,000 worth of cookies because God's word commanded it. She sold that many cookies because people desperately didn't want to disappoint her. Now, it is possible, right, that in disappointing someone that we really have sinned and thereby disappointed God as well. But sin and guilt defined first and foremost, the Bible says, is an act of insult. It's an act of insult against the love of God. The God who has made us and cherished us and been our refuge and cared for us. And David says, look, we got to feel that. We need to feel it. John Owen, who was a famous Puritan pastor in the 17th century, he wrote extensively on what it means to grow in holiness. In one of his books called The Mortification of Sin, a little book, it's a thick book, but a little book, right? Owen says this over and over. He says, don't speak peace to your heart before God does. Don't speak peace to your heart before God does. And what Owen means by that is he's saying, look, don't jump to the reality of forgiveness until you've really sat in the weight of your sin. Don't jump to the reality, because you know, if you've been a Christian a long time, you know it's there. (laughs) Don't jump to that reality until you've really considered the depth and gravity of what you've done. Because if you do, if you bypass, if you bypass that, you'll also bypass the deep joy that forgiveness really offers. Don't speak peace to your heart before God does. Honest confession will flow from feeling the weight of a God who has deeply loved you, which means, of course, that you have to believe in the first place that God deeply loves you. 
the more that you believe that God loves you, the more that that becomes a reality in your life, the more that you'll feel the weight of failing what he has commanded you to do. And David said that's necessary in repentance. It's an experience. We need to feel it, the weight of what we don't. We need to sit in it, as Owen says. Number two, simple cleansing. Let's look at that for a moment now. This is really important. Um, It's important because we have the example of Judas that tells us what happens when, when this doesn't happen. So, um, so maybe you know the story of Judas. Judas obviously betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He gets those pieces of silver from the chief priests and the elders. And then if you read the rest of Matthew's story, you'll find that Judas actually goes back and he gives that money back in an act of contrition. And then what does he do next? He goes and kills himself. The weight of his sin, though he experiences it, the burden of his sin is not enough. He needs something more. It's it's not enough just to feel badly. It's not enough just to be honest. The Bible says we have to move into a point where we understand the cleansing available to us as well. And that's what David gets at in verses 7 through 12. There's a lot of things we could point out this morning, and maybe you'll have time to go over more of those things in your table, but I just want to point out how simple the process is for David. I want you to see the simplicity of it for David. So listen to what David says in verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And if you read the next few verses, you'll notice that that over and over the next few verses, all David does to be clean is he simply asks God to make him clean. He doesn't do anything else. There is no complicated bargaining that goes on. There's no seven-step program. There's no detention that David has to serve, right? David doesn't say, wait, let me do 40 extra hours of community service and build a library dedicated to Uriah's memory, right? And, or go to extra temple services for nine months, and then you can wash me with hyssop, and then I'll be clean. All those things may be good, but they have absolutely no bearing on how David is made clean. He simply needs God to wash him. Now think about how remarkable that is. Let's go over David's sin one more time. David begins by lusting after Bathsheba on a roof. Would have been good to stop there. He calls her into his room, commits adultery with her, and gets her pregnant. David deceives everyone by trying to cover up his crime. He murders her husband. He causes others to sin by involving them in the cover-up. He remains unrepentant for a period of almost a year probably. And all the while, he puts the whole nation at risk because he is their king and their covenant representative before God. Is that simple? It's a soap opera, right? And yet, it's a mess. And yet, all, all David has to do is receive the cleansing of God. What David is convinced that he needs is the simple hand of God in cleansing him. Now, the irony, of course, is that what is simple for David is anything but simple for God. The hyssop in verse 7 was a bush that was used in the Old Testament to take some cleansing agent, usually water, and to sprinkle God's people with. So in Exodus, uh, hyssop was used to sprinkle the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of God's people to avert the judgment of God in Egypt. 
And the reason that God's cleansing is so simple for you and for me and for David, despite the mess and the complexity and depth of our sin, the Bible says is because we have been sprinkled with the blood of the one whom John identifies as the true Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ. It is his blood, according to the writer of Hebrews, who has secured for us an eternal redemption and utterly purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I heard um, uh, Sinclair Ferguson put it this way once. He said this. He said, look, it's true for... I'm not going to try to do his accent. He said, look, it's tr- this is true for anything. In order for something dirty to get clean, something clean has to get dirty. In order for anything that is dirty to be made clean, something that is clean has to get dirty. In order for David to be washed, in order for you to be made clean, God became dirty. He became dirty. Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin for you. And my guess is that there are probably some of you here this morning who anytime you come to any sort of church event, or religious event, or Bible study, you feel dirtier than everyone else sitting around you. You always feel like you're the worst one in the room, and you wonder, really, if cleansing, like the one that that David describes here in Psalm 51, is really that easy for someone like you. And I want to assure you this morning that David is no anomaly in the Bible. That the Bible is recorded history of men who were dirty, who were all kinds of dirty, and needed to be made clean. For example, in Hebrews 11, the writer there gives a list of people that God considers heroes. And here's just a few examples. You could cherry pick whoever you wanted to. Let me give you a few examples of the heroes that the Bible lists in uh, Hebrews 11. Noah had his life spared by God, got off the boat immediately, and got hammered, and took his clothes off too, by the way. Abraham tried to give his wife away twice to another man, and then, because he was sick of waiting on God, decided to to use a concubine instead to have a child. Moses killed a man, ran away as a coward. Rahab, a prostitute. Samson, you could argue his whole life was a failure. The only good thing that Samson ever did was pull a house down on top of himself at the very end of his life. These are your heroes, what makes them heroes? Well, not because they're clean. Hebrews says they're, they're heroes because of their faith. They believe that God could make them clean no matter their record, no matter how messed up they were. And that's how, that's how heroism is sort of looked at in the Bible, at least initially, that you trust in the cleansing work of God in Christ to make you clean and you stop trying to atone for your own sins. I hope you hear us say this over and over again. Cleansing has absolutely nothing to do with what you do. That's why it's simple. What the hyssop gets dipped in, what you get sprinkled with in faith, is enough for all of you forever. You are called to receive it in its simplicity. If you you worship in a liturgical church, so kind of a formal structured church like like ours, you'll notice that, that often there's a confession of sin almost every week, and that after the confession of sin, there's something called the assurance of pardon, Um, or words of assurance. Um, What are you supposed to do with that? 
If you're sitting in our worship service, what are you supposed to do with the words of assurance? You're just supposed to listen to them. You're supposed to receive them as words of God spoken over you enough to make you clean. That's it. That's how simple it is. Honest confession, simple cleansing, and then finally new obedience. Look with me here in verses 13 through 15, and we'll conclude here. I just want you to notice in these final verses, again, there's a lot of this psalm that we're not going to get to this morning, but in general, that in verses 13 through 15, the mood of David picks up, and David can't help all of a sudden but make vows to God in response to God's grace. So you'll notice that because of God's grace, because of what God is doing in his life, because he's convinced that he can be made clean by God, that all of a sudden David is motivated to be a better person. (laughs) He is motivated uh, to do better, to grow, to live more fully for God. And I just want you to notice some of the practical results that are mentioned here. Look at verse 12 with me. David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The joy of your salvation. Do you remember a time when you felt joyful because of the salvation that was given to you in Christ? Do you remember a time where you felt joyful because of grace? That's what David expects to feel here because of repentance. Look at verse 13. David says there, Then I will teach transgressors your way. If you've ever wondered if sin disqualifies you from usefulness in the kingdom of God, look no further than David, Peter, I mean anyone else. Then I will, in other words, David expects to experience ministry as a result of repentance. Do you remember a time in your life when talking to others about God's grace, um, when, when helping others understand what you were experiencing was a joy for you? That's exactly what David expects to feel as well. Verses 14 through 15, David says, My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, my lips will declare your praise. Remember a time in your life when worship didn't feel forced? When singing about the goodness of God was something that you actually wanted to do? That's exactly how David expects to feel as an outcome of repentance. Joy, ministry, worship, these are all practical results here. There's more here this morning, and I want you to stay with me because this is the finale, and it can be sort of confusing. So, Look with me closely at verses 16 through 19. I want to show you how the psalm ends. So notice in verses 16 through 19 that David talks about offering God the right sacrifices. Do you see that? I'm going to read verses 16 through 17 again. David there says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What David is saying there is that even the best gifts, even those gifts that God himself has required, like the sacrifices, are useless in the sight of God apart from an inner reality that reflects them. David is saying that more important than the outward stuff that you do is the inward stuff that accompanies, it's the real stuff that accompanies the outward stuff. The outward stuff is useless without the inward stuff. Got that? Bookmark it. Look at what we mean now at verses 18 through 19. 18 through 19, David says this. Do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. In burnt and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. All right, what's going on here? David is asking God 
to build up the city of Zion. Zion was a city that served as a symbol for the people of God. And you have to catch this. In asking God to do good to Zion, David is really asking God to make his people prosper. Um, The prosperity of of a city symbolized the prosperity of the people in that city. And what is it that David associates with prosperity in verse 19? How will we know that Zion is really prospering in verse 19? We'll know it because the people of God are continually offering right sacrifices to God. Do you remember what those right sacrifices were in verses 16 and 17? They were sacrifices that were offered from a broken and contrite heart. Okay, this is David's point. Don't miss it. Here's what David's saying. The prosperity of God's people will always be intimately connected with them living in ongoing humility and repentance. Now that's revolutionary. Here's why. You typically think that prosperity is about having it all together. We typically associate prosperity with looking good and putting on the right face for the world to see. Look at any of your neighborhood magazines that came in the mail this week. That is not prosperity according to Psalm 51. According to Psalm 51, prosperity for a Christian means constantly being honest about your brokenness before God and others and learning to trust in His grace alone to prop you up. And man, here's what it means also. Now, I could have started with this, ended with this, whatever, that, that repentance is not something that we do on special occasions. The Bible talks about repentance as fundamentally the course, the shape that Christian life takes. Just as those sacrifices were a way of life for the people of God in the Old Testament, we don't just repent on occasion, we live repentantly. And real beauty, real joy, real ministry, real worship are what we get as a result. My wife and I bought our first house when we moved to Dallas 11 years ago December. We bought a house in East Dallas. And the man who sold us that house, I may have told you this story before, I can never remember. <laughs> the man who sold us that house had done some interesting things with the interior painting. So if you walked into the house, it was a fairly small house, about 1,500 square feet, two bedroom. Walked into the house, the, it was an open floor plan. The first two rooms were painted bright red, really bright red. He was a bachelor. We excused it at first. The kitchen was bright orange. Not burnt orange, but more like Tennessee orange. Like bright orange. I like that one okay. The bathroom right next to the kitchen was bright blue. And we couldn't for the life of us, like, how would you, like, choose this? Was it a, you know, was it Will of Fortune? You just sort of put some colors on there? Like, it didn't seem to match at all. And we couldn't understand how he made the choice that he made until we were looking back at some old pictures that the realtor had sent us that showed kind of his, the interior decorating. And as soon as you came in the house against a middle wall, the first thing that you saw when he lived there was an oil painting, a medium-sized oil painting with three horses on it. Guess what color those horses were? Red, orange, and blue. See, that painting was the thing that had colored the rest of the house. And what David is saying here is that a repentant heart A repentant heart is the thing that ought to color the rest of your life. 
that ought to hang at the center and give color and shape to everything else that you do. Listen to me. Do you want to bear fruit? Do you want to minister to those around you? Do you want joy returned? David says, aim at repentance. Aim at a broken and contrite heart. Aim at the cleansing work of God in Christ. And you'll get all those other things. My first um, semester at at SMU when I was doing college ministry there for RUF, um, I met a girl named Morgan. And Morgan um, was from a non-Christian background. And she was, for the first time in her life, exploring who Jesus was in the context of the Bible. And I was talking to Morgan one night, and I asked her what she thought about RUF. Of course, I was insecure about what she was going to say. (laughs) This is what she told me. She said, you know, I was really nervous about coming to RUF at first because I knew it would make me feel guilty. And I was thinking, gosh, I hope it doesn't. And I said, well, did it? And she was a better theologian than I am. (laughs) She said, yes. But I love where that guilt takes me. It makes me appreciate and love Jesus more than ever before. That's the message of Psalm 51. You and I should feel guilty about our sin, probably much more guilty than we do right now. (laughs) And that guilt should cause us to see the grace and mercy of Christ as more beautiful and believable than we ever had before and lead us into a life of joyful obedience. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Pray it was useful for these men to think about your word. Lord, we ask for those things. We ask to feel the weight of our sin, the weight of our need, our desperation for you, um, the beauty and exaltation of the cleansing work of Christ and all its complexity for us. Help us to receive it as you've offered it to us in the gospel by grace alone. And we pray, Father, that you would restore restore us, unto us, the joy of our salvation. We pray, Father, that we would be men who would teach others your ways. And that our lips would offer you praise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.